Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, June 15th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's what we're watching today. The overlooked role of Latinos in the LGBTQ civil rights movement. Plus, the homeownership gap widens. But first, today's one big thing. Predatory billing by U.S. hospitals. A new Axios special report, in partnership with Johns Hopkins University, sheds some light on the predatory practices American hospitals are using to collect on patients' debt. Medical debt makes up 58% of all debt collections in the U.S. and has caused hundreds of thousands of Americans to file for bankruptcy. Caitlin Owens covers healthcare for Axios and is part of the special coverage. Good morning, Caitlin. Good morning. Caitlin, the idea of hospitals going to court to sue patients for unpaid debt was always considered something of an anomaly, but this reporting points out it's much more frequent than we thought. So what this is, it's a contained study. It looks at the 100 largest hospitals in the U.S. um, and largest by revenue, meaning they bring in the most money. So what it found was that 26 of these 100 hospitals take patients to court to recover medical bills. And the thing that is remarkable about this study, it's by definition hospitals that are bringing in a ton of money. It's the top 100 by revenue. It raises the question of if you're suing a patient for $1,700, what is the end goal here? What kind of protections are in place for patients to avoid having to go to court and not only have to pay, but have this on their financial records? So hospitals do offer financial assistance. Millions and millions of Americans have a deductible that's $1,000, $2,000. If you have a 20% copay on top of your deductible, I mean, you can easily go to the hospital once for an ER visit and owe multiple thousands of dollars. If you can't pay that and you don't have some kind of financial assistance, there's just really nothing to stop a hospital from taking you to court to recover that debt. And this problem stems from the massive markups that hospitals are putting on medical services and procedures. Your reporting shows sometimes as much as 12 times the actual cost. Is anyone trying to reform that? So there's a couple things going on here at once. One, yes, the cost of healthcare, including hospital care, continues to grow every year. As that happens, what insurers have done in response is to raise patients out of pocket obligations for covering those bills, including through deductibles. So care is getting more expensive as patients are increasingly more on the hook for it in addition to their premiums. This is kind of the big question that faces the U.S. is what are we going to do about this cost of care because it's becoming increasingly unaffordable for millions of Americans. No no one wants to take on the healthcare industry, specifically the hospital industry, because they're, first of all, they're the largest employer in many congressional districts. Uh, second of all, I mean, look at the past year. There are healthcare heroes after COVID. The narrative is really complicated. And so just the solution, it's often Democrats say the government should pay for more, a bigger percentage of insurance and reduce out-of-pocket costs for people. But there's really no comprehensive solution that anyone's talking about on a serious level. Kaylin Owens is a healthcare reporter for Axios, and you can find the special report at axios.com. And by the way, our healthcare team would love to hear your story. If this has happened to you, you can email us at podcasts at axios.com, and we'll pass it on to Caitlin. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. In 15 seconds, Russell Contreras, our lost history correspondent on Latinos and LGBTQ rights. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. June is Pride Month, commemorating the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in New York City, which birthed the modern-day LGBTQ movement. 
But what's often overlooked at this time is the role Latinos played in fighting for LGBTQ rights even before Stonewall. Russell Contreras is Axios' race and justice reporter. And here on Axios Today, he's been our lost history correspondent, and he's back to tell us more about this. Good morning, Russ. Thanks for having me. Russ, what role did Latinos play in elevating LGBTQ equality in the days before Stonewall? Ten years before Stonewall, in Los Angeles, there was a place called Cooper's Donuts. This was a popular hangout for gay, lesbian, and transgender people. And just like Stonewall, police would periodically raid the place and arrest gay and lesbians just for hanging out. And one evening, police arrested a number of folks, including Mexican-American writer John Ricci. But at this particular moment, transgender women began pelting officers with donuts, coffee, and plates in reaction to what they saw was harassment. The officers ended up fleeing the scene because there was so much anger and returning with more officers, and a clash developed that many people believed was the first modern LGBTQ uprising in U.S. history. John Ricci was there. He later wrote a novel in 1963 called City of Night, which documents this uprising years before Stonewall. The novel was so popular, it became a classic in gay literature that earned praise from writer James Baldwin and inspired the lyrics of L.A. Woman by the Doors. We also can't forget there were also Latino voices at Stonewall. That's exactly right. When Stonewall erupted, this was a place where Puerto Rican gay men hung out. And there was a woman by the name of Silvia Rivera. She was a Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, American transgender woman and a transgender activist that got really involved right after Stonewall. Some people believe she was one of the first persons to throw a bottle at police during Stonewall. Others dispute that. But we do know that they were Puerto Rican transgender women there who were involved and often their role has gotten overlooked. Now, Rivera is someone who became an active transgender activist until she tragically died in 2002. She helped transgender homeless people and was an AIDS activist. There's going to be a monument built in her honor in New York City. And people are starting to study her and seeing what a key role she played in transgender liberation. Russ, thanks for bringing us another moment of lost American history. Happy to be with you. Black Americans have the lowest rate of homeownership in the U.S. compared to other racial groups. And the gap between Black and white homeownership is the worst in Minnesota's Twin Cities, where new data says it's actually getting bigger. Nick Halter is a Twin Cities reporter at Axios. Nick, why are things getting worse in Minneapolis-St. Paul? The study that came out by Urban Institute would pointed to a couple of reasons. The main one being gentrification. There are people uh, moving into some of these neighborhoods that used to have low-income housing and displacing long-term low-income residents. Uh, the other one is that there are you know large corporations that are buying up these rental homes, and that has lowered our rate from 31% in 2000 to 21% today, which is a 50-point gap between white home ownership and black ownership. When you say these large investors are involved, what happens? Well, they'll come in and they'll buy hundreds and hundreds of homes in low-income neighborhoods. These are called SFRs, single-family rentals, and they'll buy them up and they will rent them out to you know lower-income families. And oftentimes, these groups have a bad reputation for letting these homes fall into disrepair, with whether it be plumbing or cracks in the foundation or, or water damage, and uh, and the complaints pile up. So it, it's a problem here. 
And is it because they own all of these properties that takes homeownership out of the reach of people who live in the neighborhood? Yeah, you know, they're deep pocketed and they can pay more for these homes than a, than a family could. Nick Halter is a Twin Cities reporter for Axios Local. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nyla. Before we go, we wanted to mark a sad new milestone in the U.S. More than 600,000 people have died from COVID-19 here. While infection rates have plummeted recently and more than half of U.S. adults are now fully vaccinated, it still took just three months to get from half a million deaths to 600,000. And even as many people return to some version of normal, hundreds are still dying every day. That's it for us today. You can reach our team at podcasts at axios.com or message me directly on Twitter. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.